Welcome to the Quality Meet Scotland podcast. Industry updates and best practice to promote, support, develop and protect the Scottish red meat sector. Hello and thank you very much for choosing to listen to this. I'm Mark Stephen. The cost of everything seems to be going through the roof at the moment, so margins are getting smaller. So that anything that can give you an edge, decrease your inputs and increase your outputs needs to be embraced. In fact, anything that can make your product more profitable needs to be embraced. Now, it's an old saying, but a very true one, that sometimes the best thing to do is not work harder, but work smarter. And the great thing about embracing technology or innovation is that you can get other people to be smart for you. Dr. John Wilkin is a lecturer in new product development and is the business development manager for food innovation at Abbottee. Now, FIA is a practical innovation unit which offers support to the food and drink industries. It connects academics within divisions of engineering and food science with external partners in industry. John, thanks very much for joining me for this. Hi there. Now, obviously, this is a QMS podcast, so I'm going to concentrate on meat. Why do you feel there's a need for new product development and innovation within the red meat industry? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I I think the the way that consumers are choosing food products is probably the most important aspects of any sector. And your sector being red meat is being hounded by the flexitarian movement the vegan meat movement, uh, and all these things are taking consumers' attention away from the red meat sector. And that's really interesting because if you think about what we're doing as, uh, as, as consumers, we are trying to find different mechanisms or different ways of eating overall. And I think that is a, a key thing that the red meat sector can actually hold on to is that your main ingredient is beef, pork, or lamb. And people know what that is, and they know that it's an ingredient, but they know that it's 95%. So that's the quality, you know? Whereas when you go and have a a non-meat or a meat alternative, or as we call them in the food industry, a meat analog, then you're having 54% protein from a plant. You're getting flavor chemicals in there. You're getting stabilizers, salt, all sorts of flour, all sorts of other things that you that are great for as a food scientist. I love to do that because it's you know it's creating something that mimics another food. That's a really in- interesting science piece of work. But yeah, I don't think consumers really appreciating the amount of science that goes into these types of products. So yeah, so it's a very interesting time for the food industry. But as a uh, meat sector, I think that we can look at what they're doing with the meat, uh, with the meat-free stuff, and go, ah, oh, that's a really interesting concept and, and how the how it's been kind of put into everything now. I think this whole plant-based thing has gone through all of it, from dairy down to, to cheeses, to meat products, to chicken, to fish. It's, yeah, it's, it's everywhere now. Going back to food innovation at Abbottee, can you give me some examples of the kind of things you and your team have been working on? Yeah, so we do lots and lots of different food products and and new product development, generally more on the consumer testing and consumer trials, because that seems to be quite a key area that people are missing out on and, and don't quite understand that they should make their product to what the consumer wants. And just because you like it doesn't mean necessarily that all the, the rest of them uh, that the consumers want. So I always tell people, this is a bit of <laughs> off topic, but I always say you can make a product look fantastic and people will pick it up. 
but to actually get them to buy it again, it has to taste fantastic. And ways of measuring that is through consumer studies. And we've done um, a couple of years ago now, we did a, a great one with a, a butcher that was making um, interesting sausages. Um, so they were pork sausages and the butcher was adding lots of different flavorings into them. I think one of them was a banana in Madras. Um, that one particularly I was quite fond of um, because it was something that I had never really tasted in a sausage before. So yeah, we did consumer studies with it. And, and what we're able to do was look at the, he was making healthier sausages which healthy sausages to me just mean add more water to them because then you lower fat and salt uh, levels to them. But it was interesting to see the consumer perception of them because there was very little differences between some of the recipe developments that we did to lower the salt and batch pack that they were using. And that was really interesting because they were adamant that they had to have it at this recipe and reducing it down to make it more acceptable and perhaps looking at the salt level. And I, I think salt has been particularly wiped out of the food industry and I think consumers now are accepting lower salt levels and I do think that a lot of butchers particularly have very high salt levels in all of their food and so just by reducing it down a little bit means that consumers can put it in themselves and they save some money in the long run through ingredient costs and and things like that. That was one very interesting project. Give me another example. We've done some wonderful stuff with a beef jerky product If you don't know what beef jerky is, then it's a dried beef product. There's two types of products that you can have, which is beef jerky, which is oven um, cooked and dried. And there's biltong, which is just left and hung and dried, air dried that way. But this was beef jerky. And it's an American product that's um, being more and more seen as a a healthy product by perhaps people who are doing uh, or wanting high protein snacks. And so this is beef strips that have been coated in sugars and flavors and what have you. And what we were finding was that they were doing lots of different processes from tumbling them, from um, adding in the ingredients, adding water in and extracting it out, and then um, drying them on in these very big ovens. And we were finding that the, and this is what annoys me sometimes about uh, food companies, is that they call it a dark art in the cooking process. Now, as a food technologist, I know that there is no such thing as a dark art. It's a cooking process, that's a chemical reaction. And so what we were able to do was fully understand all the processes that they were doing, and then optimize it to go right. If you've got this type of beef and this cut of beef from this area, then you will need to do this to it, this to it, and cook it for this long at that temperature, and you will reach this type of product. And what we were trying to do was take the very tough texture, which was great, and it's more of a male product. I know that I'd probably get argument about if a product is for men or for not, or for women. Um, But this one, a, a real tough product was more of a, a male type product and then to try and get beef jerky into the female market area it was to try and lower that um, texture so we looked at things like texturizers so things that um, that can lower the um, toughness of meat could it be a process that's bashing it all sorts of stuff could it be the cut of meat that we looked at um, and then it was the drying process so all of these really interesting things led us to optimizing their whole system and being able to then go okay, we now have a standard practice for this type of meat, a standard practice for that type of meat. And when I say this type of meat, I'm talking about what cut and also what origin, because origin and and provenance are really important when we're looking at how things are grown. And I'm a very keen 
barbecuer. So I barbecue in my own home and I'm, I'm very proud of my pulled pork, but my brisket that I'm trying to perfect, I'm finding it really difficult and I'm not getting that kind of, I'm getting a very dry product and it's a little bit of overcooking it. But also I think because we are quite lucky with where we live and Scottish beef has the wonderful grass um, to eat. Generally, the marbling effect of the meat isn't as, as grain fed. So I'm finding that Scottish beef, when I'm cooking it in my barbecue, I'm not getting that kind of succulence that I'm getting. So I'm now looking at ways of adding in the, the fat into the, into the flesh. So a bit of a long topic, but kind of <laughs> explains some of the stuff that we've been looking at. No, I find it fascinating too. I mean, going back to this idea of new product development, you, know, you said that essentially it's not enough for the thing to look right. It's got to taste right and it's got to be appealing. Somebody wants to come back and buy it a second time. But where does, you know, when you're starting to develop a new product, where does that process actually start? Yeah. So the first off, um, whenever I do anything, it's always benchmarking yourself against your competitor or where you want to be. So um, a lot of innovations in food is called incremental. So it's tiny little steps. So if you're a crisp manufacturer, you will have cheese and onion and you'll have salt and vinegar. And then you might have a bacon one and then you might have a beef one. But it's still a crisp and it's still just a flavor. So what you would do is you would start looking around and, and understanding what's going on in other sectors as well. So you might want to look into the poultry sector. You might want to look into the meat-free sector. You might even go and have a look at what's going on in the States because America still is a huge, big starting point for a lot of trends. If you have uh, a lot of cash, you can subscribe to um, like a trend-setting organization, which will tell you about all tips, different types of trends that are going on. So once you've got that kind of idea, you then write a brief. And the brief is the one of the most important documents that you start with, because if you don't get your brief right at the beginning, you are never going to get your product correct. So your brief has to be where your market is, what product you're going to do, what you will and will not accept in your product. So do you want it to have any allergens in there? Do you want it to have any additives or anything like that in it? And once you've cemented that brief, you can then start mind mapping it and coming up with ideas and writing down even silly suggestions. We get the students here to do about 40 different ones, which they then score on ease of manufacture to how innovative it is. We'll do some focus groups with consumers to figure out exactly what the consumer thinks about it. And then once we've done that, then we've got an idea or two ideas or three ideas to take forward, which we then do prototyping. And lo and behold, then the product development process we do as at each stage gate, it's called, we do consumer studies just to look at where the consumer thinks that product is and so we then sign it off at that next gate and say right this is now a lab base then we do a pilot scale and then you do the the full scale so it depends on how big the product development is but typically it can take around six to to nine months to get a product onto the shelf if you're really serious about it and we're not just talking about adding a couple of ingredients and getting your friends to taste it and go mm, that tastes really good and then putting it in your shop the next day this is about serious product development and and really understanding the consumer and what drives the consumer to that make that purchase. It's interesting when you were talking about, you know, you come up with a list of maybe 40 things and some of them are just going to be outright daft. Uh, you know, as a programme maker, because that's my line of expertise, you know, one of the things we occasionally do is we sit down and we try and come up with a list of programmes that we will not ever, ever be able to make. 
couldn't be, it wouldn't be allowed to make, it's crazy, it's daft. And then we try and work out how we can do it, how we can sort of circumvent that. Have you ever come up with an idea or have any of the students come up with an idea that, you know, just on paper looked utterly outlandish, but when you tried it, it was actually really quite good? Yeah, um, I've actually got a really fond memory of a couple of years ago. We had, uh, me and my colleague was looking at this product. It was a cookie dough ready to serve at a festival idea and we were like that just sounds really ridiculous so not even cooking the dough it was just cookie dough that you could go and get a bowl of and eat and we were like that just you know yeah who's gonna buy that lo and behold the student took that away and uh, did one festival and made three thousand pounds profit On it. So yeah, that was a, a key, a key one. And actually, some of the products that I've dealt with in the past, I've all I've gone, oh, that's a, a real winner, and it's gone nowhere. And then I've gone, oh God, who would buy that? And it's gone somewhere. So I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, sometimes it, it depends on the market and and the area that you're going to. But yeah, that cookie dough one always has a fond memory. That do you know what? <laughs> I thought it was going to be rubbish, but it actually turned out to be pretty good. You explain the mechanisms of new product development, but what are the skills required to actually work within the NPD team? Having some knowledge of science, and I'm not just like random science, it's it's chemistry, it's ingredient interactions, it's understanding processes and what processes do to things. So if you think about the jerky product, and that's quite an intense process of heat and drying, that then any flavour that you're putting into that has to be able to go through that process and then understanding what you're doing and why you're doing that and what ingredients that you do, then really having a food science background is paramount to anything that you do. So it always makes me laugh that, and no offense to chefs or anybody, but chefs are very, very good at making meals for small scale for a hundred, for about hundred people. They might be quite good at doing 200, 300 banquet type events, but what they're very good at doing is putting in very nice ingredients and going for nice fresh produce. And then when a food scientist looks at it, we're that kind of gap between the 300 meal person and the 150,000 meal person that then can go, okay, you're putting in, I don't know, coriander into that. What can we do that will give you the same thing as coriander, but which will go through that process and we can make for 150,000 people at a cost that won't break the bank. And so, yeah, so I think it's quite interesting. And we have quite a lot of people from the hospitality industry that come onto our courses with the idea that they want to do something that is very MPD-wise, but they need the science in order to then progress into the next level. And I think having those kind of food skills is, is paramount, but also having that scientific investigative mind is also really useful for understanding how ingredients work, because at the end of the day, food products are so variable. And so if you're a biologist, you're just looking at you know what happens to the cell and i'm not going to demean biology but yeah you're looking at one you're looking at a human and when you're a food scientist not only are you looking at cow sheep pig chicken you're looking at soy protein you're looking at fish you're looking at barley wheat (laughs) you name it ten thousand different ingredients that you can have and each one has a different effect in process in shelf life and everything so the complexity of food science is is in my mind, we become the jack of all and master of none of the sciences. But I think having that scientific critical mind is probably the most important part of NPD and its journey. 
The engineering and food science courses, you know, when, when students come in to you, I mean, where are they working? Are they working in classrooms? What? Yeah, so we get them in and they are all taught either through lectures, through tutorials, and then they go and do practicals. So we have some kitchen practicals where they learn some of the basics of cooking. And I was in there the other day helping the students uh, debone a chicken thigh. And a lot of them were like, God, I didn't know how easy that was and how I'm going to now take that on and buy the cheaper cut of meat rather than buying the defilleted thighs. All the way up to doing things like microbiology in the laboratories. And then in the last um, two years of the degree, they do new product development where we set them a brief and they have to write a business plan and then they get trained up in our pilot scale um, facilities and the sensory suites as well so they do a lot of consumer testing and they're kind of let loose on this product and they have to then come in and I'm and me and my colleague we play good cop bad cop and I'm always bad cop in the sense that I'm about finances and is this cheap enough can you manufacture it and is it safe so that's kind of my role and his role is is the consumer going to buy this and how much money are you going to make out of it? So it's quite a nice uh, protocol and it really gives the students this kind of grounding in the food industry and that they have to really realise that if you make a food product, it has to make money because if you don't make money, you haven't got a company. And if you haven't got a company, you haven't got a job. So at the end of the day, it's ruthless, I know, but that's the way of the food industry. If you, if you haven't got a product that people will keep buying, you haven't got a business. And I think that's probably a take-home message the students have. This is a left-of-field question, but I'm genuinely curious about it. You know, if we're looking at the economy at the moment, the bad time's coming. You know, a lot of people are actually going to find life very difficult financially. So, you know, you're looking at new products that might be tastier or, or healthier. Is there any drive or any suggestion at the moment, you know, how do we make the same product but make it cheaper? Yeah, that's um, probably the most, the biggest drive for anybody that's working in the food industry. Um, I was at a manufacturer um, the other day that makes scotch pies for a well-known frozen food company and they um, sell their pie for about 6p a pie (laughs) and it's a meat pie. Um, So, you know, you can go into um, Iceland or or farm foods and there are other shops (laughs) and you can buy a pie or lasagna or whatever you want for well i know you can buy six pies for about one pound 90. so you think that a consumer that doesn't have to who hasn't got money can eat a meat pie and i think it's about 30 percent meat for one pound 90 for six of them so they can have a meal a day for that cost now We can argue all day about how that's quality and how that's nutritious or what have you. But I think the real benefit of of where we are with the food industry is that we can feed people. The issue is that some of the food items are very expensive and the access to fruit, vegetables and, and other healthier things are probably less desirable now I sit on a, a panel in Scottish government and um, and it's full of middle class people and I will get myself as a middle class person who earns a reasonable salary and we sit there and say oh isn't it terrible that people can't afford to eat and then you look at the price of vegetables and you look at the price of um, nutritional foods and then you look at six pies for £1.79 and then you wonder why we have uh, the obesity epidemic that we have 
And I do think that we need to be more realistic with what we can do um, as a society. And I think I've probably gone off a bit too left field on that. But I think it's very interesting. It's a really complex issue. And But I don't want to say we shouldn't be selling pies for £1.70, £1.90, because people depend on that. But what we should do is look at how we encourage people to have more food skills, how they can make things in their own home, deboning chicken thighs is a key one i mean how much is a packet of six chicken thighs that have got bones in them one pound 70 80 one pound 80 you know you could have quite a lot of meals out of that and make a nutritious meal so yeah i hope that's answered your question well, it has you know and, and you know don't, don't feel bad i led you into it you know but 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 i i wanted to know and once they've come through your courses what are the career opportunities for graduates yeah, and this is the thing um, that I don't think people realise, but the food and drink manufacturing sector in Scotland is bigger than oil and gas. In the rest of the UK, it is the largest manufacturing sector again. And so our students are prepared for a life in new product development or in a technical role within or a processing role in one of the fast-moving, fantastic industries that are out there. So our... 15 to 20 students that come on our course are employed more or less within uh, two months of graduating. I have emails in September, so they graduate in uh, June. And I have emails from companies in September saying, or oh, is there any ones that are left? And I send it around to them and there generally isn't. They get snapped up so quickly because it's a skill that's that we used to get from the European Union and we're finding it much more difficult to attract those types of people. Interesting. You know, and... and- Again, we've looked at them leaving your courses. Do they know? I mean, how how do I would imagine mostly school children, school leavers, learn about your courses? Do the does the industry know what you actually offer? Yeah, I. Do you know what? It's one of those things that um, I've just had a uh, a last year project um, looking at this because we don't recruit enough people on this course, because I don't know why, but the whole of the UK, it's the biggest industry in the UK, but it has the fewest amount of graduates. And that's across, not just in Scotland, but that's the UK as a wide. You go to places like Germany or France or any Middle Eastern country, India, anywhere, and you've got far too many graduates in that field that there isn't enough jobs for them. But in the UK, we don't understand why. And it could be that people may prefer to sit in an office and have an office job rather than working in the food industry. We really don't know. But if we knew that, (laughs) it would be really good. But I think, yeah, we generally have most school leavers and we have quite a lot of people who come for a career change from the hospitality industry doing our courses. And I don't think the industry know enough about us. And if anybody is passing by Dundee, then they're more than welcome to come in and I shall show you our wonderful facilities. And any parent that's listening to this and has a child that doesn't quite know what they want to do, food science is an exceptionally interesting science because what you can do is rather than having something that is abstract, everything that we do in food science is applied and it's, oh, you do this and this is why a sausage does this or you do this and this is why a carrot does that. So yeah, I find that really, I find that a fascinating thing and I have a general enthusiasm for it. And I do think that that kids don't know enough about it. I think parents don't know enough about it. And I think the food industry isn't very good at selling themselves for it. And I think that as we progress through everything that's going on at the moment in the world, we will need more high quality graduates in the food industry. 
And I don't think the food industry is quite prepared to do the legwork to get them. And specifically, food innovation at Abertee, you know, presumably there are online facilities there that, you know, if somebody's sitting listening to this, they think, oh, I'm going to have a shifty at that. Where would they find it? Yeah, so that would be um, buried in uh, abertee.ac.uk website. Uh, And if you go into business, uh, and then there's a couple of links that will give you uh, stuff about food in there. And I do apologize, we used to have our own website, but... uh, the university overruled us and now buried us in the um, stuff. But I'm not sure if you can give contact details, but if you would like to do it, then I can certainly give contact details for, for contacting me and I can put you in the right direction. Probably what we'll do there, John, is actually just stick it in the notes that come along with this podcast, so the information's there. But it, it's worthwhile pointing out, I actually typed in myself, food innovation at Abertee, you know, at, as you would find in a, you know, a, an email address or something like that, and it came straight up at your, your page. Oh, that's good. Then Google's doing its job. <laughs> for once, for once. John, it's been nice talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. No worries. That was Dr. John Wilkin there from Food Innovation at Abertee. I hope you found this useful and interesting. Next week, we're going to be looking at careers within processing. Until then, I'm Mark Stephen. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Quality Meet Scotland podcast. For news and to listen back to previous episodes of the podcast, visit qmscotland.co.uk. For Scotch beef, Scotch lamb and specially selected pork recipe videos and inspiration, visit www.scotchkitchen.com or follow Scotch Kitchen on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.